Aubrey is a influencer uh, driven shopping app. And so we use, we leverage basically influencer styles um, to help individuals build their own style wardrobes and then shop with the brands actually match their uh, fit and style requirements. Um, and so we use um, computer vision, augmented reality, and AI um, to do that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we've been doing this for going on about two years now. So we've gone through a lot of journey to learn where we are, um, which you can talk about. Um, and so that's what we're up to. Zach here. That was a lovely voice of Dominique Aubrey, today's guest. Dominique is the founder of Aubrey, which is an influencer-driven shopping app for women. Uh, this is not Aubrey's first foray into women's retail. She actually is um, formerly the founder of All Yoga Pants. And similar to All Yoga Pants, Aubrey is all about catering to curvy women. Um, it's something we'll unpack a bit in the podcast today, as well as Dominique's uh, youth in New Hampshire, her time spent in Philadelphia, and most recently uh, being an entrepreneur in Boston's innovation economy. So looking forward to sharing the conversation with you all, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Stravideo here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with the founder of Aubrey, Dominique Aubrey. Hey, Dominique. Hey, how's it going? It's going really well. How are you doing today? Good, good, good. I'm happy uh, to be here and, and talk a little bit about startups and what we're doing. Yeah, pre appreciate you being with us and and appreciate Jesse Bardo at, at Silicon Valley Bank for for connecting us and, and looking forward to unpacking your story a bit. You've had a unique you've had a unique journey, uh, and I want to unpack it all. But sort of first for for listeners, why don't you give folks sort of a top line of what Aubrey is and, and what you're working on right now? Sure. So Aubrey is a influencer uh, driven shopping app. And so we use, we leverage basically influencer styles um, to help individuals build their own style wardrobes and then shop with the brands actually match their uh, fit and style requirements. Um, and so we use um, computer vision, augmented reality and AI um, to do that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we've been doing this for going on about two years now. So we've gone through a lot of journey to learn where we are, um, which you can talk about. Um, and so that's what we're up to. Very cool. And is this sort of like, would you call this an evolution of what you were doing previously? I know, I know the, the business journal and, and like Bostino had covered all yoga pants that you had also previously yeah. founded and, and sort of similarly that was, was focused on giving sort of curvy women better clothing options. Um, would you say yep. this is like an evolution of, of that first foray? Yeah. Yeah. So I started all yoga pants, um, because I was trapped. I was a consultant. Um, and I was, you know, traveling all over the country and I just started noticing the number of women that were wearing yoga pants, like in the airport. 
this is like, you know, it was like three, then five, then eight, then ten. <laughs> it's funny. And then I and then I look on the street, I do the same thing. I'm like, oh wow, okay, this isn't like a this is like uh, you know, it's beyond the trend. It's it's it's, it's uh, kind of the way in which we're going. This is before COVID, which is like everyone's wearing leggings, but doesn't mean everyone looks good in their leggings. And so I thought, you know what? Um, I from New Hampshire, so you know, if I could like live barefoot, I would. And so I definitely love kind of like athleisure. And so I said, well, let me see if we can find things um, that you know that fit. So we started with a inclusive line of yoga pants that we sourced from women across, mostly women across the U.S. Small kind of small businesses. And um, and started selling them. We sold sold up the market at Macy's, um, and we we're selling online, like like kind of like a dropship type of thing. Um, and that's kind of really where we started. And then um, in the process, however, we realized that it wasn't really solving the fit challenge that we thought it was going to solve. Um, because even if you like stretch is not the solution for everything, if you do it mm-hmm. in a sense, it doesn't yeah. make you look good or fit your form. And so if you were there's different kinds of body shape. That's kind of where we kind of landed into that space of looking at and saying, hey, just because you're plus doesn't mean you're the same plus, or just because you're fatigued doesn't mean you're the same fatigue. And I talked to a lot of like little, like skinny running, like white girls who ran, who like, oh, my butt was yeah. in my pants. I'm like, really? Like things I just never knew were problems, were yeah. problems for people. And so we, try, we decided to pivot and then make our own pants, micro-size them um, for women of different body shapes to really solve this fit problem. And then COVID hit. So then, now, no one's wearing pants. So that's interesting. So I want to, we, we got to talk about when COVID hit and like the, the kind of the, the pivot or pivots that, that ensued. I think for any business, there's some level of pivots that, that certainly ensued. Um, so I want to double click on, on a couple of things there. Well, one, I'm curious. So, so part of your background is that you were a lean trainer uh, for, for a tech stars company, um, lean startup machine. And I was trying to, you know, we started to unpack this a little bit in the pre-podcast Q and a kind of like, what the lean sort of methodology is and what being a lean trainer was. But I'm curious if you could kind of explain that a little bit, but like in, in sort of like in terms of how you've, it seems like you were, you've been applying your lean um, training capabilities or, or sort of know-how in how you're iterating pretty rapidly what is now Aubrey and so maybe it's like, could, could you kind of connect, am I correct in assuming that that's sort of what's afforded you a unique opportunity to be a very agile sort of operator? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I would say that when I was doing lean startup, um, from the entrepreneurial perspective, I would say it was like lean 1.0, meaning lean had existed, right? Like we kind of, if everyone follows Eric Reese or whatever, or if you blank, like, you know, the story of Toyota and like how lean went through all these other industries and engineering and agile and all other stuff kind of before like 2008 or whatever, there was a whole bunch of other stuff that's been done kind of in industry. Mm-hmm. Um, not all industries, but medical and, and kind of uh, computer kind of engineering in those spaces. So there's a bunch of stuff done. So I was like lean 1.0. Today, we're probably at like lean like 3.0, which is really about lean marketing. So it's really moved from lean product to lean marketing because of the requirement to sell and the, the way in which the market right now, like the, mark, the effort to do sales is so dynamic. Mm-hmm. and changing rapidly along the social so it's shifted so just to kind of put that in a frame for people like what well, i'm talking about that's interesting could i could i ask a follow-up and i'm trying so actually you know i kind of relate to this as like a marketer and i i would say this is true would you say it's fair to say that you can't spend too much time in the background like baking products like you have to test products and capabilities in market like you have to be in a in a pretty consistent flow of marketing the 
capabilities that you are hypothesizing will resonate with your personas that you're targeting. And you can't necessarily afford to like be under the hood, baking things for quarter after quarter. And then like having a big, you know, big launch and just kind of hope that everyone, you kind of need that like constant sort of hedge and test and market and sort of lean for me, like how you just described lean 1.0 to 3.0 kind of shifting from product to more marketing is also kind of a reflection of like where marketing and sort of like the CMOs of the world have kind of really gotten a stronger seat in sort of the C-suite in general, because, because, you know, go-to market sort of external facing uh, marketing strategies are oftentimes critical to confirming the investments in product development, which can then be sort of further invested in. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, that's why you're seeing a lot of CMOs, particularly of B2C brands, become CMOs, CTOs exactly. over time when the CEO leaves. And, um, and and just for like a nuanced clarification, every, almost every B2C brand still has a B2B business that's living sure. there that's probably actually writing the bigger checks. But it's really about how they went to market, how they built audience, how they think about the positioning of their brand from a B2C perspective. And that's right. kind of what... So just a kind of a nuance of I think people get confused about well, I'm B2C and I'm, you know, B2B and what does that mean for how I market and da da da. Um, yeah. but you're but you're right. Right now in the world, thought leadership and is everything. organic following is everything. I mean I think before you could even like do a bunch of Facebook ads to get to where you wanted to go. And I think we're at this place now where luckily you know, social, a lot of social is still free, but you, you do, you do and you want the organic following before you start paying for the ads because you're wasting money on what you can't test really mm-hmm. well. And that I think is hard for people to get their head around because they have to care more about marketing than they kind of want to yeah. <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. Uh, and companies that spend a lot of money on ads, I know a couple companies over, you know, in like 2015, 16, like, you know, kind of before all this happened, built a big following on with ads and then when COVID hit they really struggled because their audience wasn't really tied to them Mm -hmm. right it wasn't this organic community they had a small organic community but it was like two-thirds a paid community Mm -hmm. and so they really they really struggled and are struggling to keep their doors open because they just don't have enough organic reach to kind of support the business that's Um, interesting i have a couple that you're i mean i'm I'm loving this conversation already um a couple thoughts well one is i couldn't agree with you more on the cmo is really well suited for like ceo role of like a b2c company is actually do you you remember the company coach up out of boston Mm -hmm. It, it was a b2c company that was like basically like direct to consumer like like helping parents identify like private coaches for their kids to specialize in tennis or basketball, whatever. And so it was pretty hot funded company out of Boston. And anyways, the head of marketing for that company is a buddy of mine named Ryan light. Ryan light is now he's marketing guy, right? Head of marketing mm-hmm. guy. He's now the CEO of a minimalist menswear company, pistol Lake. He actually moved out to LA and rents my old apartment and he's, and he's oh. flourishing as a CEO for exactly the reasons that you just explained. And he's, and he's definitely part of like a hot trend of sort of, you know, CMO types that kind of move over to that CEO role, especially for, for D to C brands that really need to uh, market on social. Now, the second point I want to make following up on what you said is you have to be very careful as a brand. And I think I'm curious, like what your strategies are to not be completely dependent on like in my 
terms. I usually say like the rails of like social platforms, right? So if you build all your audience on like Instagram and Facebook, you know, you're in the Facebook ads manager all the time, you're building your audience there. You don't really own your audience. You don't own your data. Like it's not, that's not your own and operate operation. And there's, um, it's actually a really amazing uh, marketer out in Denver. His name's Tim Glom, someone that we, um, Fabric Media, my business has spent a lot of time working with. And like, he had this really interesting um, strategy where, you know, he was the head of marketing for Bowtech, which is like a, you know, mm-hmm. Up, upscale like you know bone arrow company and he would go on these like live hunts on facebook and he leveraged facebook's rails perfectly like he did like he was leveraging facebook live early on and he was building huge 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 audience but then he knew like well i don't really like own this audience the second i stop spending money to like advertise on facebook like i'm gonna lose you know maybe i lose one to two thirds you know to kind of your point mm-hmm. and so he found like tools like live streaming tools and sort of built his own stack so that he could start Mm -hmm. transitioning and marketing those people and and leveraging Facebook ads to say, Hey, we're going to start doing our live hunts and start and start doing all these cool things, but it's going to be over on, you know, the Bowtech site. And he migrated over essentially that audience he was nurturing through paid into his own funnel and brought his, you know, you know, cost per engagement and sort of cost per sort of conversions, like way down once he made that migration. I think it's something brands need to be really mindful of. You know, it's great to leverage the rails of social to like get rapid, you know, to, to engage audience and get rapid insights around how things are resonating, but you have to have a strategy to kind of take some ownership over sort of the audience that you're nurturing. Yeah, I think they're spot on. I mean, I think um, I have two kind of maybe main thoughts and reflections of what you said, you know, I kind of was in the entrepreneurial space when I kind of was in college, it was like 2000 and I don't know, like four, <laughs> something like that. And then grad school and I, I used to, I was more into um, like coaching. So I was like following the community, testing and all these people. And I look back and I'm like, you know, and like um, when Mint just launched and, um, and, and so kind of Noah King and all these people kind of knew some of the folks and I was like, okay. And you know, I watched their success and I was never on social and I, oh, it feels like literally like a year ago, I was like, you know what? I should get on social media. <laughs> yeah. I, I, as a person, never really wanted to share that side of my life. I didn't want to be an influencer. I didn't want to show my dog and my, you know, food. And it, was, it was like, that's really personal to me. Why would, you know, I, I never right. think. I do get on LinkedIn though. I kind of built an audience on LinkedIn, but it really wasn't my thing. And I think that was a missed opportunity because I, I could have done it differently. And I think sometimes a lot of folks like that's not me. I don't do that thing. But you really need to build the muscle, um, mm-hmm. uh, the social media muscle. And then to the Rails point, just kind of a, kind of separating yeah. the two camps. So there's there's like a I will say it's a small business play, but you have kind of two scenario options, especially for startups who are running like raising venture capital. So you have a guy like you said who, who you know who was a marketer. So what that means is not only he understands the whole funnel of marketing, right? So he understands awareness, conversion, like consideration, like he knows the funnel and he's right. building it at once because he has this background history to do it. So he can, he can easily kind of build that quickly and it's easy to put cash onto that because he can test at a faster rate. Most startups, particularly the CEOs, if they don't have a marketing person or they're not, in, they're not into marketing or we're not marketers. Um, they have to actually build the funnel slowly. So they have to just build the awareness layer, which mm-hmm. is risky to your point, because they're going to have to build on, on these platforms without the funnel to support it, right? Mm-hmm. To convert those people onto the site. So they have to kind of do the work longer because they have to build the consideration layer. They have to, and they, they have to really kind of optimize each layer and they really can't, 
really see what's happening so they kind of build one one on, um, at a time so mm-hmm. there's just something to know about pace that's i think important and it doesn't mean you have to be a small business forever in a sense but just to note that like if you don't have that marketing person on your team um and you don't have the cash to support it you can't build it fast and convert them over to your um to your website because you don't have the volume to know if the numbers are real right yeah. so like you you're stuck in awareness layer um so the goal then becomes how do i how do i get the volume I needed awareness to then start to do the work and creating milestones and metrics around those numbers to help you build your funnel faster. You yeah, have to that's right. on social and then never getting to the thing, you know, later, like you don't need a million people to build the funnel. Right. You might only need like a thousand. So, yep. okay. Get a thousand followers on Instagram and let me then get to the next layer and see if I need to convert, you know, or whatever. And so I think that's maybe a, a kind of a, a way to look at it that people kind of miss the, the milestone of the metric that helps them inform how they actually build the funnel and actually increase the pace of getting the funnel completed so they can convert them over to sales. Yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it. Now, can, can you apply that to, to Aubrey? And, and like, it's interesting, like the, and especially like the influencer driven aspect of what you're doing, like, how are you, it, it's, it's early. Like how, yeah, how does that migrate? Yeah. Like, and to the, to the extent that you're willing to kind of share like your recipe for success at the moment, like how, how does that, how does that sort of structure it? Well, right now, you know, we're working with influencers and, and really kind of building kind of early contracts. And so our relationships with them are really around conversion. So we look at certain, we look at size of audience, we look at engagement of audience. And then we look at, um, they have to kind of go through their own style slides in the first place to build out their basic algorithm for themselves regardless. Mm-hmm. And then we look at kind of all their partnerships and kind of who they tend to wear most, right? Like who they're already promoting. They don't all have to be fashion influencers. Um, so you can just be a person who's influencer who has great style. So it's not always about, you know, uh, you know, kind of selling H&M's whatever shirt. It's really about, hey, this person with a style, how do, we, how do we mimic that? How do people kind of take advantage of that style preference and, and form how they shop? Um, and so with that, um, on our tool, people can get access to influencer wardrobes for free and also pay depending on the influencer. And so they get kind of a cut of that revenue in a sense of the downloads for, for their style preferences and it's a subscription. So they get it for like the year. So people update every season, the new styles that they're into because fashion evolves and you get that access. Um, so that's kind yes. of how it functionally works. And then from a marketing perspective, you know, obviously we're leveraging celebrity to um, an influencer to basically drive activity on the platform because it's so expensive. And it's particularly with Instagram. Like if you're on TikTok or something else, it's maybe faster. But right now, Instagram does have to change. It's fully saturated. They're changing the tools to match more to Facebook, to be more of an ad play. If you're getting less access to your organic audience, all things are changing on the platform. So the way to cut through the noise is you, the biggest issue DC brands have is how do I cut through all the noise? Period. And so people are paying for influencers. So how do we create a model where I can still get access to an influencer without having to pay as much out of pocket to start that relationship? Right. And that's how we do that. And that's why the revenue share kind of works for us um, on that front. Nice. Now I'm, I'm curious, have you, are you familiar with creator IQ? This sounds familiar. I think take a look at Creator IQ. I could send you some info after. They're a company that I advise and Fabric Media advises. They're like an influencer marketing and advocacy platform, like total like enterprise grade platform for Mm -hmm. identifying influencers. Also, like 
what's really interesting about their platform, one of the use cases I like is like how they can identify kind of like they're called like micro, the micro influencers. It's like not people mm-hmm. with the, like the, you know, the 10 or 15,000 followers and they're sort yeah. of like the ascending influencers and are as expensive. And then the platform is such, it's like, it's kind of like one part CRM, CRM one part, like kind of private marketplace deals management platforms. So you can kind of like mm-hmm. just to facilitate sort of like the, business um arrangement once you do identify those influencers and then run your campaigns and then it has like all that like a really big robust analytics play to it as well um but it's one of those platforms that sort of was built kind of ahead of the puck that you alluded to is you know we're we're almost at um with regards to instagram essentially catching up to facebook's ads maturity which to people listening from a consumer standpoint means you're going to see less organic posts in your newsfeed. You're going to continue to see like more things that are promoted. And when you're looking to promote something um, at a certain cadence, like you need to make the, um, you should be making the assumption that um, a good level of your audience will not see it if you're not lever- if you're not leveraging some some level of sort of a an ads manager sort of like sponsored um, campaign approach. Yeah, and, and that's I think is like you know people talk about multi, um, you know like posting or you know marketing across multi channel. But if you're a small business like or whatever, you don't have time for that. You're like I'm not. I mean, you can try to Gary V it with like take the podcast, cut it up, the video, we splice it and push it. Derivative assets everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, not a, it's not a bad model at all actually. And when we started Aubrey, I was like, listen, forget. I don't know about all that means, but what, what we know for sure is volume matters right volume of content because we aren't the arbiters of quality like we have i said what we like but we don't know what our audience will like so really it's about volume to understand and the faster i can produce stuff the more i can produce the more i'll understand i can always enhance and create higher quality or higher customer aligned content um over time right and so i think that's something that people kind of miss but the other thing i think that's happening is that as things become more ad centric like what happened with facebook and instagram is that the even the people are on those platforms and will always use them. In mass, they migrate to places where it, it feels more authentic. Mm-hmm. That's what happened with TikTok. It's what happened with Snapchat. And yeah. after TikTok, there'll be something else. And there'll be trails of people that will stay on all of them, yeah, in the yeah. background. So you're never going to lose the audience up there. But you're, to get the um, cheapest things for your buck, in a sense, and the most access, you want to move with where the authenticity lives on social and that's how you're going to build the best audience fastest cheapest and what you're seeing now is like the link trees of the world and all this stuff become the, the place that you take with you everywhere so that yep. people can find you and you have a static source of truth for your business that's not based on the social platform right and so that's what you're seeing now and it's not even websites anymore i mean i know shopify is trying to you know they're massive but i think they're still working that relationship out because people are like I don't even need to build a website anymore to sell anything, right? And so, um, but the shipping is where Shopify wins um, with that service. Um, But yeah, I think there's stuff that people can think about from that perspective that is maybe um, a more resource-constrained approach to trying to solve for social reach is by going where authenticity is because it will be cheaper by the dollar to access audience, you know? Right. uh, this is this is fascinating. I, I, I teach a um, I'm a I'm an entrepreneur in residence at Endicott College, and I'm working with with a group of students on like go to market strategies. And the last like 10, 15 minutes or so, like I think is a good 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 portion for for folks to listen to who are like really looking to um, <laughs> understand like like some of the 
you know, best practices, tips, tricks, and just mindset you should be in things to be aware of when like marketing a company, um, in particular, you know, direct to consumer company, um, online. I'm curious. So like, I'm curious how, like, how you, I'm always curious about this with, with people. I mean, like how you get to this point, like, so you, you know, like talk a little bit about your, your youth, you grew up in, in Nashua, New Hampshire. Like you grew up, you go to public yeah. high school. Like what, like what was your childhood? Like, like you, you mentioned the pre-podcast Q and a, like me too, by the way, I was like really into science and math, but you, you, you were really into science. Um, but like, yeah. just describe what was your childhood like growing up in, in Nashua? Yeah. So yeah, from Nashua, New Hampshire. And I always, you know, it's so funny because even now I have like a New Hampshire sweatshirt. <laughs> nice. My, I, my literally my two best friends, they're married now. They're both from Salem, New Hampshire, and they have matching 603 tattoos. Oh my gosh. It's, no, it's, it's serious. <laughs> like it's really serious. It's a different day, but like, like I still have a New Hampshire license. Like I, so I know this, like I've never done, what's it called? Um, I've never had to, um, like register or be a jury, jury duty because I've never oh. in the state that I've lived in because I've always <laughs> lived in other states and I won't change my license. And now I just got married, so the update everything. I'm like, oh my god! You know? like, Congratulations, I'm not, I'm no by the way. Here, thank you, thank you. But uh, <laughs> got to change everything, my passport, and like now I'm going to be like, oh, yeah. you know, it's just a different residency. So it's a shift. So, but yeah. um, yeah. So I'm from New Hampshire, um, born and raised. Um, my parents are Haitian, um, so they came from Haiti. Um, I think in like the sixties, like when they were like 18 to 20, um, and they was in New York and then, um, my dad's in engineering went to community college and then went to Columbia, um, in the eighties when like no one was doing that. He actually got like travel, you know, shipped around the, around the country by like Boeing and BAE and all these big companies to find a, to find a job. I think wow. he's a really talented engineer. And so he landed in Nashville, New Hampshire, because it was the number one place to live in the country. And it's the only place to ever do it twice. Or the first place to ever do it twice. So it's a very really? safe and wonderful community, um, very suburban. Um, but you know, um, so I had that kind of cultural upbringing. And but you know, I think they, what the one thing they taught me very strongly since I was a child was you know, I'm Dominique first, and I'm every other, uh, I guess, if like ever, you know, woman, a feminist, whatever, all the different kind of identifications of a person. But I'm me first, and I think that was a very strong foundation for nice. my identity in terms of yeah. how I see myself in the world. Um, but yeah, they, so, you know, we lived, in, we lived in a regular neighborhood. Um, they used to grow a lot of food in our backyard. We had corn, we had watermelon. So we always had like a lot of organic food in the backyard. And then I went, um, I think every kind of school, I went to private school, public school, uh, I went to boarding school, which I loved. My brother also went to boarding school, um, in New Hampshire. So it's in Northern New Hampshire. Lake, By the way, uh, your parents were way ahead of their time. They were like hipsters. <laughs> they were like they- like hipsters are modeling their lives after what your parents are doing, like garden in the background, eating organic. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my mom was a librarian. My dad was an engineer. So we had a very good quintessential eighties lifestyle. Like we were yeah. laughing at heart. What, what, <laughs> you know, um, like, that's uh, sorry to talk over you. Go ahead. That's fine. No, you're fine. No, you're fine. Go ahead. What, um, what boarding school do you go to in New Hampshire? So I went to Brewster Academy. Oh, um, I have one of my best friends went there and played soccer. Oh nice. really? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah that's so. a cool school. Yeah. Yeah, so cool. Well, and, the, and back in the day, so it's funny. My brother went to St. Paul's, and so I, when I went to the same, he got a, a soccer scholarship because my um, dad used to run a soccer clinic and big soccer guy. 
And, oh, uh, I immediately want to meet your family and, oh, and yeah. eat organic food and play soccer because that's all I, mean, I want to like do. We have a ball signed by Pele, like in our house. Like, and I've played with some yeah. some of the best players I've played with are Haitian. Um, oh yeah. On the yeah, I played yeah yeah yeah. Like I'm I mostly I played for this team FC Americana. May, may it rest in peace because we got we got kicked out of our league for having. Um, too many people that didn't have papers apparently I don't oh, know yeah. but but everyone on the team was it was like it was just like a it was a mashup of of awesome players from South America and then like a and then like a few of us token white kids and it was like the best team okay. I ever played on um, better mean, than any, better than any school goes. team yeah usually how it goes I'm like oh my god like in another life I like moved down and with my buddy from high school who's from <laughs> yeah. Brazil and I moved to Brazil and just like play soccer for like five years yeah. in my 20s that that was like an alternate universe but anyways um, that's just a one off tangent. Yeah, we have a lot so, of soccer so, in our family. So a, a lot lefty. of soccer. I was a lefty. Yeah. I was nice. A lefty when I was a kid. I was a good lefty, and then um, but my dad was like too intense, and I was like, chill out. I'm not that. I'm not that competitive. Like I can play sports, but like I never wanted to play varsity because I was like, right. I'm just not that. I, I just I don't I just don't care enough for like yeah. the, the hardcore practice that's required for this. But I used to I did crew. I did field hockey. Did a lot of sports, and um, I, I started right. with soccer and uh. Yeah, so we can talk about soccer all different. And your brother got, and your brother did take to that. Your brother's like, all right, I'm down, and like he he went hard. Yeah, yeah. My brother um, played soccer. I mean, my my cousin was a semi professional soccer player. My my dad's sister's husband was one of the best soccer players in Haiti. So a lot of soccer. Nice. So he got went to um, St. Paul's on a soccer scholarship. And when I went to visit him, I was like, whatever's happening here, I want some of this action. Right <laughs> like, I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> and um and but at that time. My grades were like okay. I was like, I just, I'm not like a, I just don't care so much. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's the way I can put it. I'm always like, I could get the A, but like, do I really care? Like, as long as I learn what I want to learn, I don't really care so much. So I was like an A B student. Yeah. I just was not like the straight A student with law. Like, I was like, That's not my jam, but I get it. So I, when my brother was like kind of smart with no with no challenge, like he just could like, you know, read something one time over everything in it and then like get the A, you know, he had no problems. He never learned how to study because he didn't have to study for anything. He just right. did it. Well, I had to actually study and like remember things on purpose. <laughs> Different kind of person. So um, I didn't get to save calls. And then I got, so when I was young, I got to Brewster and because I'm a bit Haitian, I was like, what's the best school I got into with the best ranking? And that's what I'm going to do. Um, and that's what it was. And I tried to, I think like, Tabor and a couple in Massachusetts yep. and um, uh, Putney and a couple others. And I was like, it was like the top tier too. I was like, cool. And they actually, at that time it was the nineties and they all had laptops. So they were like ahead of the game. So you'd oh, plug wow. into every classroom and you'd be simulated. Experience. Yeah. Now it's like their Wi-Fi hardly works. I don't know what's going on, but, but back then it was like a big deal. Um, so I went there for that um, and uh, was there for three years. Um, and I love boarding school. I mean, I've, Every person, every friend of mine, I try to get their kids to go to boarding school. I thought it was the best educational experience, even beyond college, because it was a place where it was cool to be smart and it was yeah. cool to find your interest and learn about them. And it was a safe place. You yeah. learned how to deal with people from all over the world. And because you had to eat with them, sleep with them, play sports with them, go to class with them, you just couldn't bully anyone and you couldn't be mad for that long. If you didn't yeah. like someone in ninth grade, I told you your best friend because you know what? There's only 40 of us here and like, we got to figure it out, right? And mm -hmm. like, that skill set is something that you learn in boys and it's a safe space. And there's a lot of adults. There's actually more adults. Like, you go to a private school in high school, like, there's not that many adults around, like, in terms of like per student, like you have your parents and people think, oh, but your parents know guess I'm like, I have 75 parents on my campus who they live on campus. They see everything you do. So it's actually like a much safer environment. Like the amount of drugs and like stuff you can get into is like a lot less 
it's more, but it's less. <laughs> it's less detrimental. It's less extreme, you know? Um, yeah. So I loved it. I loved every part of it. Um, I used to have a club. I used to do, I used to do stuff for uh, boarding school after I graduated. I just have alumni network. I'd have uh, New England boarding school alumni network. I'd have programming and events for all the different boarding schools and have alumni come together because I thought the network was so robust. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, boarding school. <laughs> That's cool. And Lake Winnipesaukee and Wolfboro, which are beautiful. Oh yeah, that's that whole area is just amazing. Um, that that's a good that's a good. I mean, my our daughter's only three and a half. That's a good endorsement it's for like uh, boarding school in ten years. Yeah. And also because the U.S. is going through a lot of changes, I and I use, I've done a lot of stuff in education, right? So I've kind of been in the belly of the beast on that side. And the one thing I do see about public schools, even when you go to a good district with really good public schools, there's a lot of anger and trauma in the adults and the kids. And so yeah. I think from a mental safety perspective, I think boarding school is a mentally safest place for a child, actually, compared to private or public schools. So that's the something I think. Um, yeah. The, the, yeah. And it's, and it's not just like cult, like it's not just cultural diversity, like socioeconomic, socioeconomic diversity, all the diversity that exists in like a public high school, like does come with, um, it, it, it comes with risk. It's just like folks, you just, there's so many variables out of your control. There's way more, um, there's way more kids and less teacher to kid ratio. And, and there's just more, there's more trouble you can get into. And it's not even like, it's not, and, and I, like, I like the idea of public schools. Um, we moved to Beverly, Massachusetts. And I like the idea of like, like Beverly and Salem were two places we looked to, to raise our, we wanted to raise our daughter just because it's, you know, it's culturally diverse. Um, yeah. but, but it does, but it's like, I grew up in Methuen and my, my wife grew up in Lawrence and, um, uh-huh. and she's, um, she's a Puerto Rican American and she's, um, and she, like, she went to Austin prep. She, she couldn't, she likes to say, she's like, I couldn't have survived Lawrence high and, and Methuen isn't Lawrence high. And it wasn't then, although, but Methuen's really diverse and, and Methuen is, mm. and as much as I loved that diversity that I experienced in Methuen, like, unfortunately I have like more than a dozen friends that have like passed away from like drug overdoses in the last like you know, five or six years, which is just like, it's awful. And there was like a lot of, there was a lot of what would have seemed like really just simple, like decisions I could have made at certain points where I would have just been like on a completely different track. Um, and no one would have, and it would have taken a while for anyone. And by the time someone was hip to it, it would have been like, Oh, well, like, but he, but it's almost, you know, it's not, it's not ever too late, but it's like, it's, it's too late to, you know, to, to change some of the things that you've done. So um, there's a lot of drugs happening in Massachusetts. It's really sad. Yeah. It's great. New Hampshire too. That's okay. (laughs) Well, yeah, I I know it was, it was wild. Um, And actually one of my buddies from Methuen is a cop now. He just, he's actually, um, I just served as a reference for him. He's moving over to Portsmouth. I'm really happy for that. But he he was in Summersworth and Mm -hmm. the amount of drugs in Summersworth and like, I mean, they're like partnering up with like federal agents on like major investigations of things running through Lawrence. And that's like the amount of but just the amount of drugs that, that do exist and are making their way uh, to young people is just it's 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 absurd. So like, yeah, and, and, and you couple that with like the anxiety that comes with, you know, raising kids at a time when they have all these, you know, things, you know, digital access to the world. Um, 
you know, through devices, you know, internet connected devices. And it's like, Oh my God, I need to, I need, there's not enough chill pills in the world to calm my anxiety as a parent. (laughs) (laughs) My parents, um, only recently, a couple of years ago, they were telling me how they had actually bought books about how to raise black kids in white spaces, which I didn't know, you know, growing up to really make sure that we had like a strong mental health. Which, you yeah. know, and it's so funny because we would only buy people like in our neighborhood and earnestly when I, until I moved to Philadelphia, I didn't even know I was light skinned. I was just like the black girl. And, and mm-hmm. there were black and Spanish kids in New Hampshire, but I was in different levels. Like I was in like level one and two, and so there's always level yeah. three and four, there's a lower level. So economic class sometimes plays a lot of a role in, in kind of where you sit and how you see yourself and all these different things in a suburban context. And so you start to realize that um, this, the mental health of your, the, Building mental fortitude with your child is like the number one thing. Having them have a strong sense of self, yeah. to self, you know, is is an important thing. And I think for me, I was just like a kind of a strong little person. So I was very grounded in who I was. I think for my brother, he what they he, I think what they did with him was something that he was great at. I figured out what his talents were. Said, hey, you can anchor on to these things when you feel insecure if you have all these talents. And yeah. I think that's what allowed us to work through the world and not kind of get typecast or whatever is just some certain narrative. I mean, even when I left to go to boarding school, my friends were doing, to your point, serious drugs, yeah. special K, cocaine, like ninth grade. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and this is this nice suburban town, you know, yeah. town in the country. That's usually right? where it and happens. Doing serious drugs, you know, so, and that was never my game. And I was like, eh, eh could be something else. <laughs> but, but it was one of those things that I think, um, you know, boarding school has its own, but it's not, it's not to the same degree. So that's my, that's my uh, two cents on, yeah and 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 again and shout out to your parents again for being so woke like reading those books and just like you know quietly in the background reading those books and just like and just like guiding you and nurturing you um to be in in strong positions to just you know soar and and sort of thrive in life so so i'm I'm curious like from boarding school like where like where did you go to college and like what like what and like how did you make your way to is that to uh, philadelphia so I did city year Philadelphia. So I was at boarding school for three years and um, decided I was like, oh, I'm tired. Let me take a year off. I wanted to go like kayak to like, I don't know, like Panama. My dad's like, chill. Oh, uh, <laughs> I love kayaking. That sounds <laughs> awesome. Like you're not doing that because <laughs> you don't know how to kayak and like you're not as athletic as you think. And you're going to go do something else. So I went, I found this little thing. I went to like a student leadership conference and I saw the city year thing lifted up and my brother was at UPenn. And so I said, oh, let me do city year. So I went to Philadelphia for a year. And I did city year and I taught um, social, uh, actually it wasn't taught social emotional learning anymore, but it was, um, it was like a uh, kind of math, um, kind of, curric- kind of, kind of curriculum, social curriculum. I taught that in like North Philly. For is a year. that the and same then, as teach for America or is this different? No, it's different. For city okay. year back in that, well, they've all changed. The city year focuses mostly on after school support and teach for America focuses on teacher training. Got so they're just it. like okay. two sides of the yeah. same thing. I, I did but apply for day, Teach for America in college. Um, so so I'm familiar with Teach for America, but I just wasn't sure if this was like well, the similar. Application for yeah. city year is not nearly as good as not. Oh my God, was it crazy? <laughs> I like made it it's through like, like, I don't know, was there four or five phases and I made it to like the second to last and then I got cut. <laughs> it's like harder to get in to Teach for America than like Harvard. It's ridiculous. Oh my God, it's, it's insane. It's I wanted insane it so and, um, bad too. It was one of the more heartbreaking things in college for me. But anyways, uh, back to you. So yeah, it was good. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, and I did sit here like on a fluke, took a year off, had a great time in Philly, had nice. great some great people, and I had I had applied to um, college and took a uh, year off. This was before gap years were a thing, like 1999 or something, 2000. Right. So like, no one was taking gap years. Like, How I'm European good. of you. <laughs> 
I know. I was like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm going to just take a break, you know, at 18. Um, so, More people should do it in the U.S. I remember when I went yeah. to Australia for a semester at, you know, 20, 21 years old, I was in college and met all these 18 year olds that were doing a gap yeah. year. I'm like, what the hell's a gap year? Why didn't anyone tell me? <laughs> right. Where are we? Right? Exactly. No, yeah. it was, it was, it was, it was, it was good. And I went to uh, Lehigh, um, ethical cool. science major, like you're not an engineer. You should be out there. So I was good at math and science. I right. just didn't care for it because um, I just was not a, I'm not an academic by trade, but my interest is building things. I used to start clubs and I would always, you know, become the president or little leader of whatever thing I was doing. Like I just was like, I'm not trying to take no one's rules and BS and trying to do my own thing. So I never was like into, into kind of like this, the requirements of the uh, yeah. discipline of engineering. Um, so I did that. I was at Lehigh High School. I graduated in three years and my third year I took abroad. So I went to, DC for a semester I studied education policy and research. Um, and I was an intern um, in DC um, and then doing kind of education lobbying. And then in the spring, I went to Bhutan in India and I studied um, Chinese politics and attend philosophy and Chinese politics and that kind of interrelationship and traveled all over India wow. and Bhutan for about six months. What was that like? And, what what um, was the Indian culture like? Like, was that a culture shock? Like, how did you acclimate there? I rock hard with Indians. I love the food. Yeah. <laughs> the music. Yeah. I love I'm Indian food. Dude, you got to come to Beverly sometime on the other Beverly side of this food. apocalypse. We're in come to Anmol. Look up Anmol, A-N-M-O-L. Okay. People come from all around like New Hampshire and mass. We'll have a meal okay. at Anmol. If you like Indian, it's, and I have Indian friends that have visited from like LA and stuff. And they're like, I, I've gone there with them and like, Oh shit. Like this is legit. Um, nice. but it, like, I, I love, I love it, but yeah, I love the food. I mean, that, when I think of India, I immediately just think of like, Oh my God, I'd eat, I'd like gain 20 pounds. Cause I would like eat my way right. through India. <laughs> I like, I mean, we, I was in every part of Delhi and I was in um, Calcutta and, um, I was in, um, kind of Mysore and uh, Southern parts and, um, different parts of upper Pradesh by the Dalai Lama, different parts of India. So I kind of, I did, I lost like 20 pounds. I could be walking everywhere and like the food's so clean and the sun, it's just like, I, I rock with India. I've been to India many times and I rock with them every time I go there. And everyone's like, are you Indian? I'm like, nope. <laughs> but I love here. Um, yeah. And so um, I love that. And then I study a lot of Tibetan. So we stay with Tibetan families and um, I spend about a month studying um, Buddhist um, religion in school. So I spend nice. about a month teaching inside a monastery and um, you know, with monks and yeah. a lot of reincarnates and do a lot of meditation and all that. And then went to Bhutan and did some, um, some similar work. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it was beautiful. It was a, a beautiful place and went to um, some really amazing little, I think it's called the Tiger's Nest, which is like this like epic, like you go like down, like you scale like a, like a ton of steps underneath a waterfall and you walk up a hundred steps on the side of a cliff mountain and I'll like, take a picture from the last black person to ever be here. <laughs> which is not true, but I was like, but it was definitely, um, it's like, it was a like one moment. step beyond a cliff walking, you know, where you wow. like kind of, walk along the ridge, they had just built like these steps, but there was no guardrail. So if you just like, if you die, you just, you just going to fall, you just going to die. Like there's nothing. You have the picture, you have the picture now, right? Um, yeah, not if yeah. you're at home. You, <laughs> you should, should like, I want to see this picture. I almost want to put it on the, blo- I want to put it on the blog. Uh, yeah. I want to see the picture. You have to share that with yeah, me. See if she can send a picture um, of that. And, but, yeah, and um, what did, what was, did you, I found it super enlightening. I took Eastern religion in college. I, I love, like, I love Buddhism and, 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 and consider myself still like a, you know, moderately, you know, practicing sort of Buddhist just in sort of like 
you know, in principles and sort of some of the meditation practices and trying to kind of like just really just get get into a sort of meditative state sometimes especially on the weekends where i try to just like all right like i tr- basically try to become a three-year-old so i can just hang out with my kid and just have like the wonder of just like things in front of me and not like draw on all the all that's in the past and just like really and i all i find myself just channeling things i've learned about buddhism a lot in life um so i'm just like was that like what was that experience like well, you know, monks are still people. So it's, I think that, you yeah. know, I, I find that three different kinds of monks. You meet the babies who are like running around, like hitting each other with their, with their robes. <laughs> they're like six and they're boys right. and they're like, whatever. Right. And so you and are climbing up trees and getting coconuts, but they're using their ropes as like, you know, very aerobatic actually. Um, but you see that. Um, then you see like the teens and the, the adults um, and they're really, you know, much more severe. I mean, they're all in the internet cafe, so they're not, they're tied to the world. They're just making a choice. It's not like they're like in isolation to a place where like they don't know that the internet exists. Like I go to the internet cafe and they all months. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, you all know what's going on <laughs> on the internet. So, you know, they were very aware, um, but they're very, you know, uh, practicing their, their they, they do a lot of debate. So you hear them debating um, the Buddhist, the Sanskrit scriptures um, a lot in like huge courtyards, like hundreds of monks, which is like a really cool mm. experience. It's very loud and, and raucous and they kind of slap every time they make a point. And that's, that's how you flip the turn to the next person to make their, so it's like this whole like debate, negotiation, kind of what you do the scriptures and all that stuff. And um, so that's really cool. I think you meet the old heads who have been like, who are just like the calmest <laughs> people. Um, but you can the most, the most woke. Oh my god, the most woke. Like talking to you, like so, like you're like living seven lives, and they're talking to you. You're like, okay, you know, they're just really, they're really present, and also a lot of reincarnants yeah. who come back and they know their past histories and past lives, and they know who they are today and the differences, and and so you know, you know, that really, I think at the end of it, all what you kind of learn is just really. I don't want to put it like an internal peacefulness. There's a some knowingness that comes from that. And then I think a, a practice around stillness and just kind of intaking things before jumping to something. This is a kind of like, you know, people kind of just are so reactive. And I think if nothing else, what it taught me was like the one second to make a choice before you react. Like just mm-hmm. the one second to go, wait, that might not be reality. That might be just my version of reality. Like, wait, you know, one second, you know, yeah. I'm just trying to, and even when I feel good to audience people or whoever, myself, whatever, I always have kind of have that moment. And I think no matter how it goes, that's reduced in many cases, a lot of what could have been a bigger issue or explosion or argument or whatever. It's just that a little ability to go, like, this isn't the full reality of what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. There's only one version of it, right? And you can take that one moment breath to kind of like anchor yourself to that reality, even if you're yeah. in the moment of an emotion. So I think that was kind of, um, that was kind of like the, the take home and, um, of, of that experience. And I met a really great guy, who, Perber, who was like a, when I met him, he was, he had a gold tooth and was wearing a puffy jacket. He was a Tibetan old man. I'm like, whoever you are, I have to know you because this is like hilarious. Like this, this whole look is like crushing. So I was like, I need to know who you are. And he didn't speak any English, um, but we just bonded. He was my doorman at my hotel when we first got to um, Darfala, which is a Dalai Lama. And so we just, he wrote, he wrote me letters. I met his daughter. Um, we still stay in touch. I helped him get, um, he did some bifocals. He became a, a monk for the Dalai Lama, actually. So he prays mm. for me every year. He's hiding in my parents on Facebook live wow. with him. And, 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 um, and he says that I was his daughter in a past life. And so, um, he's always, he's like my guardian angel from that trip. You know, that's probably the thing that I needed to do when I got there with meet him. Um, and so yeah, wow. so I have my own, my own, my own monk. 
in my corner, which, which is always helpful. That's amazing. So, so you're, what a be, what a beautiful, thank you for sharing that. What a beautiful, what a beautiful experience. How did, how did one woke Dominique sort of reenter in the United States after that? Like, what were you envisioning? So I wasn't yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like what, what were, like you were clear eyed, but like, you know, what, yeah. what was on your mind for like what you wanted to pursue at that point? And then like, what was kind of your next step? Well, I'd applied to grad school because I had, um, I was, I was young. I started school young. And then when I went to Booster, I took a year over. Um, cause my dad was like, you're going to be there for two years. Why don't you go for three and you can take extra classes and whatever. I feel okay. Fine. Yeah. And then I took a year off and then so I, I wanted to catch up. So I graduated one year early from Lehigh. And then when I was at Lehigh in my third year, I grad, I applied to grad school. So I went to, um, so I already had gotten accepted into a uh, new Penn's ed school to study education research and, um, and, and policy. And so I went mm-hmm. right into my master's program when I got back. Um, and so I did a year at Penn, um, studying the, and I did a whole, my whole thesis was on like religious education, what I, the work I had kind of started. Um, I was supposed to go back to Bhutan, but I was like, eh, you know what? There's no heat. And like, even the hotels still use like firewood. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to live that life right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of went, eh. But I, I wrote a, a lot on that. And also I do a lot of work on charter schools. So, um, so in that process of doing that, I, I can I double click on that for a second. What was sure. like on charter schools? Like just like do you have like do you have a POV that you sort that sort of was a takeaway on charter schools? I know it's a big topic, but like what was could you summarize what what you sort of found yeah. at that time? I think charter schools. Okay, so I think <laughs> charter schools are better than public schools when you don't live in a great city yeah. or town with their public schools. Mm-hmm. I don't think charter schools are better than private schools. Um, I think they do academically teach a level of rigor that I think is, is valuable. I don't think culturally they really teach because they still have a mentality about brown and black kids that mm-hmm. still makes it feel like a little chain gang just in, mm-hmm. a, higher, in a higher level establishment, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I think in that way, you can't talk in line, you can't talk at lunch, you, did, 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 you know, so there's the zero tolerance approach and which is not neg- not bad necessarily. It's just, this, um, it, the premise is you're in many cases, not in all, I mean, kids do a pretty good job in those other places, but in general, it's like, you know, you come flawed, you come with challenges. So we're trying to mitigate those from the jump, but we actually don't actually know what your challenges are. We actually don't actually know. We're making a lot of assumptions about who you are. And, and the reality of charter schools is your parents will already be super involved. So to even have that bias is a little bit off-putting because you're like, wait, the parent is already jumping through hoops to go to the charter school. So why would you assume that therefore that they have an active parent but also have all these other challenges that all black people just have, right? Like intuitively because you're black, you have all these problems. So I think that can be um, challenging. But if you're not being the academic, if you as a parent can solve for the social emotional issues of your child, then it's okay to go to charter schools because they will solve for the academic issues of your child or they will help your, your child build a rigorous um, educational foundation, which is important to be mm-hmm. competitive. So um, it's not a yes or no, but that, I think that's the consideration. If you yeah. have capacity to take care of your kid socially, emotionally, I don't know if they're going to do better or worse than a charter than in a regular public school, but they will get the education. So. Yeah, Interesting. Like, yeah. it, so there's maybe a harmonious way that charter schools can exist in communities with like 
solid public schools, but almost as a way to augment public schools for like a case. It, it, it comes down to individual care of humans and individual care yeah. of young people and certain young people maybe benefit, especially those who have this, maybe the soft skills, but it's difficult for them to like hone their hard skills, i.e. like practice in in a rigorous environment um without distraction to sort of like hone the hard skills required to like thrive in what will always be a competitive marketplace to be successful and earn and earn uh, an income well, like there's certain people that will you know will always benefit from that sort of a setting but it's not an either or scenario for like the populace in general but i think you have to remember two things about school in general one it's an adult problem it's right. an adult belief problem. Right. I believe something, so I'm in public schools, and public schools, I believe something that's right in charter schools. So there's a, a fundamental belief culture that's in, that's behind those things that people are buying into that create those structures. So they are not created by student demand, they are created by adult demand. The second thing to know, like everything, is that it's all a business. Bucks and seats count mathematically. Yeah. And you know, even with boarding schools, people buy and sell boarding schools, and people forget this. It's education institution. Like, no, that's just the that's just the business that moves the money. Yeah, you know, and so we have to remember that yeah. about how money moves. Yeah, <laughs> that these are all businesses. Education yeah. is an industry; it's a business, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it might have some social good components, right? But it's also it's also a business. So when you look at that, look at the drivers of the business, and that won't tell you everything you know about the district, the school. You know, how the money flows, what the money flows to, what they care about, that that will tell you the story of, of who they are and if you want your kid to be part of that. I mean, you don't have to go, you don't, you know, have a discussion with anyone and you'll find out, tell you of all these federal grants, which ones did you apply for? Those are the ones that you care about. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's just, it's very straightforward in, in a way that's scary, yeah. <laughs> in a sense. And with charter schools, you have more transparency yeah. to understand what they really care about. But I think we kind of yeah. forget that because we want the story of like, you know, citizenry and educated history and kind of all these like really, um, you know, kind of beautiful stories about kind of democracy and, and what we're trying to create. But I think we forget that it's really an industry and mm-hmm. it has to move money as a business. And so yeah. it's a business first and the keeping your kids happy is the requirement for the business to stay in business. And yeah. I think people forget that. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I, it, I think that's, I mean, for what it's worth, I think that's a, a very fair and honest way to put it. And like, you know, scary is one way to, I mean, yeah, like the word that came to mind for me as you were talking is like, it's, you know, it's like sobering, but true. It's like the same thing when you start to wrap your head around like what you are involved in when you're like at a university. Like for me, like I was at Boston University and like once I, and it even in, in, in more crystallizes, I think, as you're kind of coming out of like university and for me, like, you know, like wrapping your head around like student loans and just like really just thinking through like, wait a second, like, what did I just do for a few years? And like, what kind of investment wait. did I make? And, and what, <laughs> what, and like, and you, and you know, it, it, it I, I didn't, um, I wasn't as prepared for sort of like the business enterprise of what the education system was. Um, and it didn't sort of like, and it, and it actually is like, kind of would be a pretty beneficial thing for young people to be further introduced to. Like there's another, there's a couple of folks I've had on the podcast that are like really focused, um, on teaching kind of like financial, 
literacy to like young people and just like help, you know, and, and, te- and just like talking to them about like the enterprise of education is like one of the many topics that exist in, in addition with like, what is debt and like, how do you build credit and like all these things that like, we just don't tell young people. It's like, well, we're going to have to deal with the world and we are dealing with the world already increasingly at an earlier age. So it's, it's valuable to like, not have us sort of like stumble into like the discoveries of, Oh, education is like a for-profit enterprise. Like like that should be proactively told to us. <laughs> exactly. You know, and also and to your point, I mean, and um, it's it's like everything. And this is why this is why we're seeing kind of the um, the uh, I should deconstruction of, of education as, as we know as we've known it. I think is because you start to do ask two core questions. One is like how valuable is a teacher, not in public school uniquely, but the, the role of the guru, the role of the teacher. And what yeah. you find out is there are moments when that teacher is super important, but there's a lot of moments when it, they're not. And as an individual, a self-managed you know, managed individual, can you learn, can you teach and learn yourself? Because information should be free. It, originally, it was not free, but we know that people held knowledge and that for different reasons. So now that it's accessible with the internet, now the fear is, well, how, what happens if you come to a different decision or out, you know, insight than I do? Okay, mm. now that I have a fear, because now I can't control the situation because we don't agree, right? Because you have to come up with a different idea of what's true in reality that I have, yeah. right? So these are the things that kind of keep systems in place because you want to have the, the, the group think to be able to organize a community and, and, and align and be able to move forward as a group. So these things are what becomes really scary with kind of why don't you to go to college? It's not just about money and financial education, which is the one part that keeps people kind of tacked to the system. But it's about, do you care? What does it mean to be an informed citizen? I don't know. Yeah. Do you have to care about all those things? Do you need to know, like, not to push a lady down the street? You know, like, do you need to know yeah. that or do you not? Well, you just learn that by people and, you know, how, how do those things happen? So when we start to say that the school system is no longer responsible for that, we just have not lived through a generation. Um, and probably, I mean, since probably what, the, since they started the Department of Ed, which I think was like in the 50s or 60s, which, you know, we haven't had a conversation about what it meant to, raise and rear kids at home and teach them all your teach them everything at home we haven't had that conversation for a long time we've given that to the school to do yeah. so we don't know what it means to take that back you know we're like Shit, do i have to now become a teacher at home do i have to become a homeschooler like all these yeah are, and to what extent COVID? do i become a teacher you know yeah and, and then how and do it's all these variables yeah. How much yeah. is this my role and to what amount of effort is involved and and what and then and what does that involve <laughs> And the reality is, is you can't, I think the, like, Ron, this was, I think the kind of moral, kind of all that kind of noise I was just spewing was more just to simply say, you can't solve it all. And the goal yeah. isn't to solve it all. And so then you ask a different question, which is like, okay, well, what if I just let it go? What happens? What happens for the kid? If I, as long as I keep the rails on, what happens yeah. if I let them self-actualize or self-figure it out? Or what happens if I don't try to pre-program everything I need them to know to be the kind of person I want them to be, but actually I see how they're learning and I adapt. That has to lead in me, right? How do yeah. I respond? You know, how much is inorganic, how much is organic, and how you build something, right, is a, is a fundamental kind of idea um, there, I think, that people um, kind of miss. Um, it's like you don't have to control every piece. You can make sure that the things that you want, you create kind of anchors for, and then you look like, like a trestle in a, in a vine plant, you can grow on it, yeah. Is that, is that idea? You know, it's like a, yeah. you plant a seed. So I think I think it's a lot easier for people to do as adults too than try to yeah. like manage the whole system. And it's also overwhelming. Yeah, well, well, well said, and also speaks very well to why you are so suited for 
the role you played working with superintendents? Like, is that kind of, is that, yeah. was that the next thing you did in your career? And like, how did that come about? Like, and I imagine you, a lot of the work you did at UPenn, like on the research and, and sort of, you know, thesis papers you were, you were working on, um, is it, did that kind of set you up for that, for that role? I worked for the city of Philadelphia. Um, I worked for um, the school district of Philadelphia doing project management. I worked for Teacher America, you know, as a um, kind of pseudo chief of staff for Miami Dade. Um, um, and I, I went into tech our company. I worked, I ran a co working space, um, had a small food company. Um, I've always done entrepreneurship things on the back end of this. You know, this is not, <laughs> you know, all these things don't add up to me becoming a fashion entrepreneur. <laughs> but, 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 um, but from a career perspective, it's on my space. But I always knew when I was 18, I said, you know what, if I had, could do, if I had to have a job, what would I do? And I said, I work with superintendents. So it was kind of meant to be. The job I got, I had applied to that place three, three different times, actually. And the first two times, they were like, oh, you're, you don't have an MBA feature earlier your career and the third time they hired me and then I took on the largest work that they ever had which was building lean startup school teams and, and working um, in on new cost analysis she's a planning with large urban school districts across the country so Los Angeles being second largest like Denver a couple others and so I was doing a lot of big district work um, interesting work um, exhausting work um, mm. because it's, it's I mean LA just to give context the school district of LA has a has a higher budget than the city of LA because it's LA Unified School District. It's like eleven billion dollars. Maybe now it's less because of COVID. I think that's maybe eight billion dollars. Um, that's a humongous budget. You're, that's a small city, you know. Yeah. So when you talk to people that work at that district, they are operators. I mean, these people are running a city. They're five hundred thousand students. You know, that's a city. That's yeah. a, that's the size of Greater Boston. I don't think people also know that. You know, it's huge. So I think. Um, it's not like, oh, let's talk about kids and learn. I mean, it is. But there are systems and politics. Politics. And also, yeah. every district is different how their board works. Sometimes their board, um, they operate as like almost like a city council would, where they're getting paid by the city to do that role. So what happens? They then have to um, pr- you know, produce outcomes for their constituents, for their parents and their students in that district, in that area. So all of a sudden, you get a lot of bureaucratic noise. Mm. Through. Because in, people in are always campaigning. Yeah, for different things they want. Keep their roles and 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 and, yeah. and have their stand, their publics, their you know, f- folks publicly acknowledge and and see what their agendas are, so that they can be connected mm-hmm. to the outcomes, so they they can keep their positions on the committee. Exactly. Yeah. So urban school districts become really challenging places to work. Um, and I think at the, at that point, I was in the I was in the belly of the beast, you know, across the country. I was like, yeah, I'm good on this because I think what I learned. But that it's by design, you know, it's by design. You have to look where the dollars are flowing and you have to look at what people, not just what they say, what they do. And you see the belief system showing up all down the chain. It's not the students, it's, the, it's, you know, it's not the students, but it is. It's not the teachers, but it is. It's not the admin, but it is, right? Yeah. Uh, everyone has a finger to point. And I think it's a delusion, people who dedicate their lives sometimes to, to education or in trying to make it work. They have a, a fundamental flawed belief, which is like, not every kid's going to make it, but I'm going to make sure one does. And that's enough for me to get paid really well to do this work, <laughs> you know, and get a good pension and have, be able to care for my family. And you're right. It does matter for that one kid, but it's that fundamental flaw that like, 
my my hands are tied. I don't want to do what I can do because no one's trying to. Well, do it's a losing mindset by definition. Like whether you yeah. want to admit it or not, like it's you're a, admitting yeah. law, you're admitting you know, in, in in the loss here being well, some people lose, and those some yeah, people right. are young kids that lose. So they get that yeah. mindset is really upsetting, right? Like in, when and you're I'm, coming yeah. to fight. So yeah. you know one person's gonna lose. It's a fight. Yeah. If it comes to yeah. fight, you already know one of us has to lose. So right. you've already been, you're already prepared to take some losses. And so it's yeah. not bad necessarily, but I think what it uh I think what I saw was that the real things that need to be addressed, no one was going to address them. The real yeah. things about how policies are made. Because what you end up seeing is that there's a lot of policies that come down from the federal level um and the state level that are ridiculous. And it's one and I've seen in smaller districts where superintendents have said, Hey, I'm not gonna do that. It doesn't make sense. Does that? And the state has been like, oh, we didn't know that. Okay, we won't do that with you. With you, one district. But the rest of you all do it because no one said anything. Right? Yeah. So what you see is a behavior that no one wants to really deal with the source of what's creating the chaos. I mean, when you have a teacher who gets three different curriculums to teach the three different kinds of students in one class period, you have a flawed system. Like, no one to teach three different things at the same time that all have different time demarcations when your class is only 45 minutes and they all require two hours of learning time. You can't. So those are things that are happening at the school level. That's messiness. That's noise. And the teachers that succeed are the ones who don't do any of those things. But they get really bad scores until they don't. So they'll get bad scores by their directors who go and say, you're not following Common Core. Until all their kids take the test and the kids all get the highest marks and then the best teacher in the district. So what kind of stress is that for a teacher? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think when I, I think when I saw that and I realized that people are trying to solve problems and they are trying to solve problems in what they consider their locus of control. So you have too many cooks in the kitchen, which is a locus of control, and it's creating strain and stress at the school level that no one's resolving. And they're just pointing fingers and blaming when they could just go roll it back, look at at a policy level and make some hard here's the hardest decision to make. Every kid matters, but every kid can't matter every single time, every single moment. Right. Based on the system that we've built. Otherwise, you can go to homeschool mm. or go to small class and learning. Right? So we don't want to have those real conversations. We just want to fight for what we want. We want to stand out there and pick it and say, no, my kid, special ed needs this. Or did that needs this. And you're like, right, but there's only one teacher and 30 kids in the classroom. So, like, how? And the, and the math of it, in truth, is anyone who's exceptional at anything, most people are nice. Well, everyone's exceptional at one thing, but you are not corralling all the exceptional teachers in the world to come be teachers, yeah. right? So that means it's an impossible feat, but you're doing it anyway. So this is why this is a madness. Yeah, <laughs> this, well, it you know, is incredibly inequitable incentive, or incentive alignment, and, and to even use the word incentive at all just is almost laughable, like with sort of like, you know, incentivizing top talent to kind of really embrace you know and be lifer you know education lifers and 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 whether it's in an operating capacity or in it or sort of like in the classroom um it's something that's you know that's something that was clear and, and bothered me from a young age um and still does it's just like it's it's a, it's like i mean you asked me what i wanted to do when i was in you know middle school high school like i was like well i i already know i'm like well i'd love to be it i'd love to teach and i'd love to i love i just love being you know i loved being a captain of teams and being a leader and like and then i just kind of and and later in life it's kind of confirmed like oh yeah i have this I, well i'll tell you how i'm not but i also want to like be 
independent and be able to, I'm like, okay. And there's all these things that you start to want, you know, that's in your own self-interest and you're like, those, those, there's no alignment with what's in my self-interest in, in, in like, you know, being, <laughs> in the, being an educator. And it's just so, yeah. it's so sad. And I have such a great number of friends, my, you know, my brother, my best friend, like, you know, they, they spent time, they similar to, you know, similar and they, they, um, you know, they went back and they taught them in high school a little bit and like, you know, and they, you know, they do full year kind of commitment because a teacher was on maybe maternity leave or something. And they're like, eh, it's gonna be really cool. But like, you know, everyone since moved on and it's like, oh my God, and they were great teachers and they would continue, they could have continued to be great and even better teachers, but it's just, there's no, it, the incentives aren't, you know, instruction aren't just isn't there. It's just really unfortunate. No, and and and, I, and I'm not gonna, you know, in general, I'll retract a little bit. I'm not gonna on everyone's career choices, yeah. or admin or whatever. But what I will say is that whenever you have a situation in life, doesn't matter what it is, where the thing you want is not manifesting, the thing you want isn't, is, is, is a push. What the education system is doing, probably for the better betterment of humanity, and at least in the U.S., is it's a, a requiring us to start deal, dealing with the fact that our systems have run amok, that we have run amok, that it forces us to go like, hey, what is my kid learning? And oh, should I have to care about that? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, like it's, it's forcing me to go, oh, I, I'm not teaching my kid about financial management and they should learn about it. Or is it okay if my kid actually fails English? Not because it's okay that they fail English, but why don't they like it? It's not my job. Because you're going to have to make them like it. Why don't they like it? Do I know that about my kid? Like the responsibility yeah. It, it, when we start to set the timeline and be like, oh my, this is a bigger investment than we think. And I think it's just forcing us to read, and COVID does something on this too. We yeah. assess what we care about, what we value, and start making different choices about the life we want to live. And sometimes when things, the one thing we're bad at as humans is, is until you break my fucking leg, I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> do things yeah. to not break my leg. Right. We have created that environment where we have to be pushed to the max to force change. But what if we could just be ahead of that a little bit? You know what I mean? Things would be, and so that's where we're at. And so everything that we've created, we've self-manifested as a community, as a culture, as people. So we have to look at that and go, am I mad at them or mad at me? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to put it too. Like, it's like healthcare. It's like, we're, we're so, it's it's such a reactive care industry as a, as a, as opposed to preventative care. And there's certainly been strides that have been made in recent years, but like in general, like we're just very like flat footed when it comes to a lot of these well, if I, business, I would be in holistic healthcare a hundred percent. If I was doing something, if I did something yeah. else as this, I'd be right there. Yeah, in, there's in um. The Totally. A buddy of mine, Bill, and he, I mean, he should know he's a serial entrepreneur at this point, but Bill Giannoukas, I've had him on the podcast. He sold his last company, Trumpet, to Wayfair, and then he went, went and ran like the mobile team at Wayfair for a couple of years. His most recent startup is called Good Path, and it's like mm-hmm. a holistic healing, like digital marketplace. Like you go mm-hmm. in, like imagine like Aubrey for holistic health. Mm-hmm. Like you go in, you answer personal questions, like you get like this, like, and then you get based on the things that you're experiencing and the things you're seeking, like you get sort of like a list of like, here's like holistic medicines and, and treatment plans, et cetera. And then they have like a, and he's from Greece, like his family. And he has like a call, like he has this call center and he can get on the phone with the concierge to talk you through all the whole, like the list of like holistic med- And there's, there's a lot of different avenues to kind of take the holistic sort of healing medicine, um, sort of entrepreneurial path, but, but, but the good path is, is the way that Bill's taking and it's going very well and actually mm-hmm. has really accelerated, um, 
during during the pandemic. So actually, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I think it's he's definitely ahead of the puck right now too. I think there's a there's a there's quite a big pie um, from an entrepreneurial sort of like startup perspective for folks that kind of yeah. want to focus on that space. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that's, my eyes have been on it. <laughs> nice. So, so, so as we as we come up on time, um, I have to I have to ask. So I asked you in the in the in the pre podcast Q and A, like what you're most looking forward to um, once the pandemic's behind us and traveling, seeing friends. I think we all relate to that. You said maybe hosting a barbe- barbecue. I'm curious, like what's like a Haitian barbecue like? Like, is there anything unique that would go on the grill? Um, do you actually you know do smoking? Like you know when you cook cook food at a barbecue like what's you know um, what, what what are you most what, what's the what's the what's the Aubrey family special that that we could expect <laughs> at your barbecue well, I would say first <laughs> and foremost for all my um health conscious people out there I don't eat tons of meat but um barbecues I'll make the exception because it's like my favorite kind of um if I'm going to eat it I'll eat I, it I don't either so so I actually it's like bar, it's like you know I eat fish so it'd be like yeah bar, it would be like bar, it would be like salmon and it would be yeah. like roasted vegetables and and uh beyond burgers okay, <laughs> maybe nice, nice, nice. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well Haitians eat the worst kind of meat that you pork a ton of it uh yeah so Rio is like the Haitian you know uh you do baked mac and cheese you do uh, fried pork, um, which is delicious. Um, we do uh, a certain kind of like um, sauce chicken. Um, uh, we do more like a European salad, so like lettuce and like tomato, like a light salad type of thing um, for for barbecues. But um, cool. I used to be a big cook, so I would do I'd make my own brisket from scratch, and I'd cook it for seven hours, and I would do yeah. you, know, you know roast and all the different things. So it would probably be a very meat heavy, but I probably make all my own barbecue sauces. Um, and yeah, I make, I make everything from scratch. Ooh, you make your own barbecue make, sauces. Nice. Yeah. I make everything from scratch. If I can, except one thing I don't make from scratch is like noodles because I can make like yeah. a pizza, but I don't really like have the machines to make like proper noodles. So I don't make like pasta from scratch, but everything else I make from scratch, 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 scratch. If I can, I'll get it local, local organic from a farm directly. So I get everything as clean as I can. Wonderful. So, uh, be very tasty from that perspective. I, I like to throw big parties when I before COVID. So. You and me both. Where's home? And where's home now? Um, to Malden. Cool. Okay, you're in Malden. I'm. We're not far from each other. We'll, we'll let's maybe we'll get together for a backyard barbecue this summer. And when when as the world's returning to normal, I'm looking forward to getting a chance to uh to meeting in person. Perfect. Yes, love it. This has been such a pleasure, Dominique. I'm looking forward to sharing this with the world. Yes, wonderful. Thanks for asking. I had a great time. Awesome. All right. Well, you enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. You too. You too. All right. Cheers. Bye. Cheers, Boston. Yes. <laughs> <New Hampshire too. laughs> Cheers, New Hampshire. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.